Hi, I'm Paul and welcome to The Danger Zone. The Danger Zone programs about war. Humans have spent most of their time fighting each other. I'm going to share with you the best stories that you've never heard about war to the best music that's ever been written during or inspired by these wars. Sit back and relax. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. This week's Danger Zone, James Bond, Captain Jack Aubrey from Master and Commander, Rambo, and Winston Churchill are all going to be rolled into one very busy Australia Day 2019. Australia's had a long and successful history of military men being given important roles in our civilian society in times of emergency and peace. In our own times, there's been the major contributions to Victoria by the best general in World War I, General Sir John Monash. Monash brought about the early end of World War I. He went on to head up the State Electricity Commission of Victoria and was the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. Major General Alan Stretton was the general who helped the recovery and reconstruction of Darwin after Cyclone Tracy in 1974. Peter Cosgrove, who helped far north Queensland recover from Cyclone Larry in 2006 and then went on to serve as Australia's Governor-General. And now we have our new Governor-General, David Hurley, a former Senior Army Officer and Defence Force Chief, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his leadership during Operation Solace in Somalia in 1993. That tradition began with the founding of modern-day Australia, when Captain Arthur Phillip was appointed to found a new nation when he was appointed to command the First Fleet. Phillip had a remarkable background. He was an officer in the Navy, he'd been a spy, working undercover in France to watch and report on its shipbuilding activities. The French looked like they were building a navy to try to take on the Royal Navy yet again. He'd been loaned to the Portuguese Navy. He helped them and spied on them, preparing detailed maps of the coastline of parts of South America. Importantly for Australia, Philip had been a farmer in England, 
He was also a philosopher and a visionary. His greatest challenge and triumph was his role in working out the purpose and basis for a colony in New South Wales and the principles which that colony would be founded on. But what current day, controversial to some, practice in Australia was at the heart of the decision to found a colony in New South Wales. What does Australia do today that England back in 1788 did? Offshore detention. It was popular in England in the late 1700s. Before the American Revolution, England had been sending certain kinds of convicts to Virginia and Maryland in the Americas. After the loss of America, the main idea that came up to solve the problem of where to send the convicts who'd been sentenced to transportation was to offer them to Portugal as slaves, to be used to row galleys or to be sent to remote, unhealthy and hostile parts of the Portuguese Empire. Of course, Captain Cook had planted the British flag at Botany Bay and claimed Australia for England on the 22nd of August 1770. French explorer Yves Joseph de Coglin, second in command, had landed in Western Australia on 30th of March 1772. He planted the French flag, claiming Australia for France and Louis XV. Those French sailors shouted, Vive le roi, three times, fired three volleys from their muskets, wandered a bit inland, found nothing and no one, then returned to their boat and left. All of these theatrical events didn't give the French or British ownership of the Australian continent under international law. A colony had to be established and maintained for that to happen. The British were worried about the intentions of other European powers to occupy Australia. A French expedition was soon going to leave for Australia and New Zealand under the command of Comte de la Perouse. A strong rumour emerged that 60 convicts were going to be boarded on one of the ships under his command. It looked like there was to be a race between these two mortal enemies to gain control of Australia. Adding Australia to your empire offered enormous strategic advantages against Spanish, Dutch and Portuguese possessions in the Pacific and Indian Oceans. In 1774, King Louis XVI replaced his late father, King Louis XV, as monarch. La Perouse's voyage, as all voyages in the Age of Sail, was a very long one. While he was away, the French Revolution happened. Louis XVI maintained what may perhaps seem a strange obsession with the progress of La Perouse's voyage, when in 1793, as he was being led to the guillotine, Louis asked if there was any news of La Perouse. Such dedication. So what did the English or French have to do to make Australia one of their colonies? International law at this time provided that the land had to be without an owner. This meant either literally without anyone living there, or the occupants were what was called an indefinite 
population of hunter-gatherers. If either of these applied, it was possible to claim such land for your country as its possession. So, claiming the ownership of Australia could only be established at this time by labour through agriculture and construction and a permanent settlement. Since the Indigenous Australians were hunter-gatherers and didn't put up buildings or conduct agriculture, Australia was there for the taking by a European power. Sticking a flag in the ground wasn't enough. The idea of sending convicts to start a settlement to work the land and to construct buildings was seen as the way for Australia to become part of the British Empire. The rumours of La Perouse preparing to bring convicts down under was a threat that couldn't be ignored and needed to be headed off urgently. England saw a clear and present danger from the French. In December 1985, the French had entered into a treaty with the Dutch. The French and the Dutch appeared to be working together to threaten the British in India and to be looking at Australia as their next move. A report to King George III on the 16th of August 1786 warned that the danger from these two countries was about to explode into war. Three days later, the Cabinet decided to establish a settlement in New South Wales. Was there likely to be a war between the English and the French over Australia? When Philip arrived at Botany Bay on the 18th of January 1788, he sighted one of the ships under La Perouse's command lying nearby. It must have been a heart-beating moment. Philip had been given instructions on how to respond to any hostile encounter with the French that may have threatened the establishment of a British colony in New South Wales. To fight. It was lucky the French didn't have any such intentions, or Australia could have immediately been plunged into war from its first day of European occupation. I'd always assumed that when Captain Philip landed in Sydney Harbour, and raised the British flag that he was claiming the whole of the continent of Australia. But he wasn't. A treaty between the Portuguese and the Spanish, going back to 1494, when Spain and Portugal were the leading colonial powers of the day, had divided the world up between them. When Philip landed in New South Wales, he was told that he could claim the eastern coast of Australia from Cape York down to Van Diemen's Land, but only to the west to the 135th meridian of longitude. That's roughly where the present-day border of Queensland is shared with the border of the Northern Territory. The colony set up in New South Wales was going to be different to anything the British had been involved with before, and it made Australia a land that benefited all Australians today and will into the future. The convicts that England used to send to Maryland and Virginia in America were part of a privatised business arrangement. England only wanted the convicts out of their country. Once they were delivered into the hands of the businessmen in America, the government of England had nothing more to do with them. They ended up as slaves and were unlikely to ever be freed. Philip's vision for Australia was humanitarian. The convicts sent to Australia were there to build a community 
that could grow into something that would have a value and benefit to England and which would transform the lives of the convicts. They were intended to be freed to build a new settlement. Philip could free convicts as soon as their good behaviour and hard work showed that they were no longer going to be a problem. He was to give them a grant of land and generous help with provisions to establish farms, 12 months of supplies, livestock and necessary tools and utensils. The convicts under Philip were not locked up behind stockades. They didn't wear leg irons unless they'd caused a problem. The convicts wore their own civilian clothes. They were allowed to build their own huts. Rations were distributed equally throughout the colony. It made no difference what military rank you held or what position in society, from governor down to convict. Not long after the colony was founded, food came into short supply. Everyone had their rations reduced. They all had the same allocation of this reduced food ration. Then an even more dramatic relationship developed between the prisoners and their guards. The marines that were provided to guard the convicts and provide security, especially if they had a hot encounter with the French, proved a difficult bunch for Philip to deal with. Their commander, Major Ross, proved a difficult man to get along with. And that was the last thing that Philip needed, facing all of the challenges of establishing a colony that might as well have been as far away from England as the moon. All of the marines were uncooperative and lawless. Supplies were in short supply because the early attempts at agriculture weren't successful. The marines proved a bigger threat to the precious supplies and vegetable gardens than the convicts. Philip took the amazing step of selecting 12 of the most reliable convicts to guard the supplies and gardens at night against the marines. Major Ross bitterly complained that Philip had put his soldiers under the command of the convicts, and that pretty much summed it up. Poor Philip had to end what had proved a very successful measure and let the thieving marines resume guarding the precious supplies. Australia's beginning as a modern nation under Philip were unlike that of any other country on earth. It proved a wonderful foundation for the greatest country in the world. Governor Philip was truly a man to be admired. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>